Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. It has been 30 years since Ted Bundy, arguably this country's most notorious serial killer, was put to death in the electric chair by the state of Florida in 1989. But there continues to exist in our society a morbid interest in him and the ghastly way he murdered and disposed of the women he abducted in the 70s. Many people want to know how a person could do the things that Ted Bundy did. It's truly frightening to think that there are fellow human beings who possess such dark desires and act out their murderous tendencies on the innocent and unsuspecting. We tend to think of these individuals as inhuman or evil, which is the only thing that makes sense to us because what drives Ted Bundy and others like him are not feelings that any of us can remotely relate to. In exploring what might have been working inside the mind of Ted Bundy, the angel of decay, triggering him to brutally snuff out the lives of so many young women the purpose is not to increase his anonymous celebrity or sensationalize his heinous acts, but to shatter any such appeal. The only way to do that is to remember the women and young girls that he killed, not merely as victims, but remembering who they were, how they lived, and the impact they had on their families as well as those around them. They have a lot more in common than being casualties of Ted Bundy's violent psychosexual desires. The book that we are featuring this evening is Ted Bundy. Good evening, Paul, and welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to uh, introduce you to the audience uh, as uh, the author of this book, Ted Bundy. But we had you on on True Murder a few years ago with your book uh, called Caught in the Act. Um before we start this yes. interview, tell us a little bit about that book and uh, the full title of that book. And uh, before we start, uh, this yeah, interview. yeah, caught in the act. Um, the subtitle is called "A, a Courageous Family's Fight to Save Their Daughter from a Serial Killer," uh, which, if people recall, it was a truck driver who was getting out of his vehicle uh, in the middle of the night, uh, parking it in one of those rest stops and dressing up in black and taking knives and different instruments with him and going down into the communities nearby and looking for unlocked doors to go into and search for for women to, to murder. And uh, a family in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, happened to hear some noise late at night. A couple woke up. The father went into the daughter's 15-year-old bedroom and saw this giant man and dressed in black with a knife over his daughter. Um, before the, anything could happen, the father ended up tackling this, this man who was much bigger than him and subdued him uh, until the police got there and they found out that this guy had done this two or three times previously and, and killed and killed women in the same fashion. Yes, and uh, the full title of that is Caught in the Act? Yes, it's called Caught in the Act and it's subtitled 
uh, courageous families fight to save their daughter from a serial killer, um, which which this gentleman was. I mean, he had three victims uh, that were that were known. Um, so he was, I guess, he was just starting out in his uh, his ventures in, into uh, serial killing. So this family intervened and and stopped, saved the daughter, and probably saved who knows how many lives because they captured this the serial killer in their home. Yes. And that was a previous interview on true murder. I suggest people uh, recommend people might take a look at have a listen to that. Now, for this book, uh, The Angel of Decay, before we start about uh, going through some, I guess, interesting things that I hadn't read before or were brought up much differently in this book and this examination of Ted Bundy, why did you call this book, Ted Bundy, The Angel of Decay? Uh, well, I was looking for various titles. Uh, obviously, uh, Dan, there's so many things that have been written about uh, Bundy in the past, and then obviously, and in, in recently, there's been a, a renewed interest because of the uh, the big movie and, and other other uh, social media things that are going on with the 30 years since he's he's been put to death. So, I was just looking for an interesting title, uh, something that would would stand out and. Would, would interest people to look up, but because I know a lot of people are well past who young people who are even younger than me that don't know too much about Ted Bundy and are going to rely on movies, which sensationalize a lot of the uh, the facts and they don't get into all the interesting details sometimes that that a book does. And I wanted to find out what more there is because I know there's so much more information available now than there was in the past as far as minute details about all of the girls. All, a lot of them have various websites where their friends, families have things posted now where they talk about the lives of these girls. And I thought that was the important thing here, not just to detail the grisly crimes that, uh, that Bundy committed, which people, most people like it and to know about. Let's start off with uh, the origins of Ted Bundy. And you talk about his grandfather, Samuel Cowell's influence. So tell us who Samuel Cowell was, and then some of the characteristics of his behavior um, before we talk about more of the influence uh, later when he was uh, adopted by John Culpepper Bundy later on. Tell us first about Samuel Cowell's influence. Yeah, I mean, if you know anything about, uh, I've read about Sam Cowell, he's a, you know, an interesting relationship that he had with Ted because Sam Cowell was known uh, around his, not just immediate family, but around the neighborhood as uh, a pretty nasty gentleman, abusive, verbally abusive, uh, believed to have, you know, uh, struck his wife. So he was that kind of personality where uh, he didn't seem well-liked, but he happened to be a deacon in his church, and if you ever – Ted Bundy never said anything negative about this man who everybody else seemed to dislike. Uh, so for some reason, either Ted Bundy didn't want to talk about it and he was in denial about what his grandfather might have done, or uh, the grandfather somehow didn't uh, didn't abuse him in, in any way verbally or physically, and Ted Bundy has nothing negative to say about him because he, I was looking everywhere I could, and he really had nothing but nice things to say about this man who was – who at the time when when Ted was born he was embarrassed that his daughter was having a child out of wedlock and it uh it was a stain on the on the family um so that that was a, that was a big influence uh when Ted was deceived early on and people your readers your listeners may know that Ted was deceived early on who his parents really were his grandfather's pretended to to be his father and his actual mother was pretending to be an older sister for a while. They tried to get away with that scam, and so there's a lot of a lot of family dysfunction that was going on early on 
um, that you can see might have made a, a young young man feel uh, not not normal. As we can say that. Before we talk about how he learned to vote, specifically about his his true parentage, um, you t- you write about that it was known, or at least you write about that the grandfather tortured animals and had a porn collection and a big porn collection. And we will, as we talk later, we will talk about what Bundy had said about violent porn, as uh, many of the fans might know already. But let's talk about um, the, the the big porn collection and the torturing animals information that you found. Yeah, I mean, I found uh, just a, a couple of references that that referenced that it wasn't just one. And I do list my references that 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 indicate that the grandfather Sam Cowell, you know, did have a collection of pornography that he he shared. Uh, Either openly or Ted uh, found it and then observed them himself. But uh, it was known that this uh, deacon of the church uh, had this this collection and then that that attracted Ted uh, early on. Um, and I know Ted did talk about how this uh, how pornography influenced him later on in uh, in life and his uh, confessions while in prison. How much that uh, created uh, his feelings, but. Um, a lot of those confessions uh, have to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, obviously, it was the end of his life, and he was looking for for some reason that may not have been actual or not. But uh, pornography itself was something that the grandfather did have in, in, in some amount. What's called large by a uh, large collection for some might not be large, but it's it's uh, observed that he did have a, a pornography collection of some kind, and that Ted had access to it. Um, which may or may not be unusual in some families, but for Ted, he indicated that this this uh, affected him uh, growing up when he became when he turned when puberty came along and he entered middle school. He started to have some some issues socially with uh, the other children and with confidence with women. So um, it's hard to to know exactly how that influenced him, but he did observe that he did have this collection of pornography that that Ted did uh, have access to. That that's there's not much more to it than that, other than what Ted said later on in his. His uh, his confessions while he was in prison on death row. Now, according to what you found, and again, there's conflicting information, contradictory information, but from everything that you found, how did he find out in particular about the true nature of his parentage, who his parents really were? Yeah, if anybody who's written about him will may have different opinions, or they may list different ways that he found out about this, um, from uh, being teased by uh, cousins of his that you know he he was his bastard child and he didn't know who his father was, being teased that way, or um, um, his mother definitely did not let him know, uh, so it was something that was that was kept a secret. So it might have been you know something that was. Uh, he wanted to know, but she wasn't going to give him that information. So, I, and Ann Rule actually uh, believes that he had gone down to find out uh, and researched himself, you know, what his parentage was by going, you know, to the location where he was born and, and kind of researching and finding out uh, who gave birth to him. But again, even Ann Rule says that's that's what she believes, and there's no proof of of any of that. Exactly how he came to learn. Um, you know who his mother uh, had to, had you know had sex with to, to have him bring him into this world. So it was something that he wanted to know about for his whole life, and it's just something that uh, that he never really you know came to terms with. I believe. Certainly, 
You say in 1950, Louise's mother and the family moved from Philadelphia to Tacoma, Washington. And you write that Bundy seemed to miss his grandfather. Um, But for a time, they were living with his uh, great-uncle Jack, who impressed Bundy because he was successful. He was a college professor who had sent his kids off to boarding school, and he seemed to have wealth for himself. Um, and you know he seemed to be successful. Yes. But his mother met this John Culpepper Bundy at church, and they were married the next year. Um, as you write, and many else, other people have written as well, it seemed to, that Ted was um, forming this this opinion about based uh, opinion of people based on their success and their um, their wealth, despite not growing up what we would categorize as poor. Tell us about that. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, I think uh, being you know middle class to, to lower middle class is not something that Bundy was uh, was interested in for himself. He saw himself as something something greater. So when he met uh, this you know, relative of his, it was an uncle Jack, I believe, um, college professor, probably did very well. Uh, could you know travel and, and go on vacations, do all these things that his family couldn't. So it was something that he wanted to achieve have uh, at least have the perception of being wealthy and and that was something that you can see early on and out throughout his life too is uh, how he wanted to portray himself and it was something that he could not afford to live in certain that lifestyle so to to achieve that he would steal and that 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 uh that was something that he did his whole entire life uh petty theft and just getting what he wanted through any means possible. It seems that he was had an affinity for for nice clothes, and wanted to uh, present himself as a uh, sophisticated, and 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 you know middle class to upper middle class type type of a guy. Um, and you can tell early on that how he wanted his father, his uh, his, his uncle Jack, to actually adopt him, and he wanted to be in in that family. Actually, it was believed that he actually asked his uncle Ted if he could adopt him. Which was something that was pretty insulting to uh, to John Bundy, who his mother had married, and and by all accounts, uh, John Bundy, his stepfather treated him very well and tried to include him in in all of the family events and and not make him seem like an outcast as a stepchild. So it's just something that definitely is, is in Bundy's personality trait that he needed to have that monetary uh, that stigma that he had he had something. You write too that he had a juvenile record based on the shoplifting and thieving, getting in minor trouble, relatively minor trouble. But at 18, of course, a juvenile record in that state was expunged. But you say at that time he began peeping into people's windows. Tell us yeah, some of the other was... darker things that he was interested in at that time. Uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, Dan. It seemed that that was something he had an interest in, and you know, he he talked about how he uh, was interested in those detective magazines at the time that came out. They were kind of salacious. Uh, they were you know, pretty strong R-rated uh, magazine type things, and they had crimes. You know, they were featured crimes, and they usually violence was involved in them. There would be you know, bloody bodies, and um, it was something a magazine that that he enjoyed, I guess, because it combined you know pornography with with sex, and you can't say that the magazines created that in him. There would have to have been something inside him that was attracted to that for for some other reason. Because you you show a magazine like that to different people, and they're not going to uh, turn into what he did. So 
you know, he can blame he can blame the, you know visualizing and seeing those magazines for the reason for what he did. But you know, he's he'd be smart enough to know that that's that's not entirely true. It's a pretty complex, you know, what 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 happens to somebody when they when they turn into a serial killer if they're born that way or what influences them along the way. And that's a whole other discussion too, Dan. Uh, but as far as how he you know, how he got into peeping, uh, it's just an adolescent curiosity, which is which is one thing, and then that happens as well. And again, those those children don't turn into serial killers either. But this was something that did interest him. You know, obviously as a young boy, peeping and the pornography, and it, and it's just something that he he talked about, and it was it was well known as well because his neighbors would see him, and he did get in trouble for stealing and doing these different things, and so it's just part of what what he was when he was a young man. You're right, though, that his need for, at least outwardly anyway, but his need for normalcy in, uh, he graduated in 65, and then he enrolled at the University of Puget Sound. Uh, Later, next year, transferred to University of Washington, and there is where he became romantically involved with a University of Washington classmate, and he used a pseudium, it is a pseudium, Stephanie Brooks, a pretty yeah. wealthy girl from California. Uh, as we talked about this before, but I, I, I don't think people can get enough of this incredible seems cause and effect here. Uh, tell us about this woman and the relationship and uh, Ted Bundy's reaction to meeting this woman. What would he thought of this relationship and what happened in that relationship? Yeah, this is one of the things that many, many psychologists will will point to as saying, you know, this is something that really influenced him and created an an anger and a need to control uh, because he fell in love with uh, this uh, woman, uh, Stephanie Brooks, as they call her. Uh, She was a very pretty, wealthy uh, girl from uh, California. Her family was from San Francisco. And she had all the classic looks, I guess, that he desired with the, with the long dark hair, uh, being very pretty. And um, this, they, they, whatever relationship they had, he wanted more from it. And um, uh, I guess she wanted something differently than what he had to offer her. And when he uh, dropped out of college and decided to get into politics, he started volunteering. I think at the first it was with the Seattle office of the Nelson Rockefeller presidential campaign. He got involved in right. politics and dropped out of school. And I guess maybe that, that may have influenced turning her off as far as he wasn't pursuing an education and a, and a, a career somewhere beyond you know volunteering uh, in politics. So she left, went to San Francisco to be bet with her family, leaving him behind. Officially, you know, they were broken up. She she left him, and that, that devastated him, I believe, and most psychologists will say the same thing that he he didn't know how to handle that rejection, that that loss of control. That's something that he wanted, that was in his grasp, and it got away. And then people think that this is something that really angered him and set him off on a path of of what he he started to do immediately afterwards. Anne Rule, and I, again, you, she's got a a lot of credibility with me and and, sure. and most everyone else. She believed that at around that time he he drove to Burlington, Vermont, and found his birth certificate, including his real father's name. Although he never said that to investigators, that would account for quite a bit, wouldn't it? Yeah, you could see how that would set him off too. That would be a, a definite uh, start because uh, he did dr- suddenly drive off and drive across country um, to 
to Philadelphia uh, to see his parents. And you could see him stopping off in Vermont to actually, you know, find out more and investigate, you know, what's what's wrong with me? What? Why can't I keep a girl? Why am I thinking these things? So it, it might have it definitely might have triggered that. And, and, again, he never admitted. He admitted to many things. Bundy admitted to many things he he didn't do, many things he did do. So it's really hard to to say when he found out. But you know, I, you know, Ann Rule knew him, spoke to him, and I believe she probably had a sense about him, even if she wasn't told directly that this is when he found out when he went to investigate himself in Vermont in the in the area where he was born and that that home for unwed mothers where his mother gave birth to him. Mm-hmm. Now in. Shortly after, which is fall 1969, in Washington, again, University of Washington, yes. he met Elizabeth Klopfer. Uh, she was 24 years old from Salt Lake City, and she's a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine, recently divorced with a three-year-old girl, uh, Tina. What I found fascinating was that in your book you have m- much more information about this, again, seemingly normal Ted Bundy in a family situation with Elizabeth Klopfer, not his ideal type of woman by any means, but tell us a little bit, as you write in the book, about this seemingly normal Ted Bundy in this family situation. Yeah, even before the family situation, Dan, when they when they first met, and, and you and described how how they met in a bar and the, the, the eyes across, you know, that, that whole romantic setting and, and how we swept her off her feet dancing that night and they spent uh, the night together and then the next morning he made breakfast. That, just starting from that, it, it was like, you know, this this guy is normal or he, is he acting normal or is he is he wrestling with some demon that uh, he's got two sides to him because the night they had together and the relationship that started from that night is uh you, you wouldn't think it was possible from a man that that had would do the things that he was about to do and uh you know with the 3 year old daughter as well i mean they got they got on like like it was his uh his own daughter he treated her so well uh, by by all accounts they were the 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 perfect couple he seemed very happy from outsiders people who knew him uh, friends of uh, elizabeths and she just was was all uh, thinking that this is this is the man. This is going to be the one that I'm going to settle down with and, and raise my daughter with. And it seemed to be going so well um, at that point. So you, if you, if the story stopped there, and uh, it, it would be it would be one thing, but it, but it didn't, and it progressed into into what he became in the serial killer. But from that point on, this this is something that I find fascinating: how he could live this life and then all of a sudden just just change over into to something else fascinating yes it's interesting too that you add um, a, another fascinating detail that people might know, know know about but the parents met and uh it was a, it was a good meeting when he met her parents and he again he was still looking for this upper middle class existence and he was impressed by it so her dad was a dentist that was appealing to bundy and her parents liked Ted. Uh, unfortunately, when Elizabeth met his his mother and stepfather, he, it, the tension you write in between the mother and Ted was obvious, and and it seemed that Ted it was a good example of Ted um, kind of resenting his more humble uh, roots. As oh versus yeah, Elizabeth. Oh, absolutely. You know, his his stepfather being you know a, a cook. His mom is secretary at at, a, at the Methodist Church, 
and it, it just wasn't what he preferred. I mean, they were they were nice people. They treated him so well that that should have been enough, and they had enough to get by. They wasn't like they were poor, but he just wanted more. He wanted that uh, that lifestyle. You know, a dentist is a, is a little bit uh, you know higher up in his his eye as far as uh, you know what what culture and, and lifestyle can bring, and he wanted that for himself. And obviously, he thought he was exposed was showing Elizabeth his family. He thought that she would be put off by the way he would have been by showing him his, uh, his how his family lived, and uh, she wasn't. It was really all in, in his own mind how he perceived himself and not how others perceived him. So he, he you know, he made it through that because she did not have any problems with his family. Uh, he had the problem with his family, and that's something that uh, he, he always carried with him, the resentment for their for their you know income uh and for his mom for you know not not telling him who his father was so i think that resentment just just continued to grow throughout the years as in his adulthood you write too incredible events happen in the early 70s ted is 24 saves a 3 year old boy from drowning and then really receives a second uh condemnation from seattle police department uh, tell us a little bit about these acts of heroism. Again, unbelievable considering what he ends up being known yeah, for. Yeah, and, and you would think that this guy, what he's about to do with his life, uh, he sees a little boy struggling in the water, maybe not drowning, but definitely in, in dire straits uh, and doesn't see anybody else around, his parents or anybody else, and he takes the initiative to to jump into this water and, and you know just get him out of it while he was struggling. and. It's an instinct. It's an instinct to, to save a life. Um, and knowing everything people know about Bundy, you would think that his instinct is is to take lives first. But here, he, I mean, obviously he was as a three-year-old child and not uh, not his typical victim. But he still took that initiative to you know save a life. And in another incident, I, I found out too fascinating was somebody that's something that he did was was steal from women, steal from their purses, and. A lot of times in, in supermarkets, probably he would, you know, when they're not looking, go into their purse and take money. So that's what he did. And one afternoon, he's at a mall uh, doing who knows what, but he actually was leaving the mall when he saw somebody, a man, steal a woman's purse and run off with it. And he would think he would, he would be more sympathetic to the uh, the robber here, but he actually uh, saw this happen and went and chased down this, this purse snatcher. <laughs> And received accommodation for that because he did hold the uh, the person there until the police came by. So again, it's it's an act that you normally wouldn't associate. You would think that that's that that can't be true. That that's made up. There are accounts of this, and obviously he got accommodations from the police. So there there's you know records of that. Um, and either something something happened to him from that from that uh, day on, or this is these are these are. Uh, two different people working here. One, uh, one normal type Ted Bundy, and one that is going to uh, go on a serial killing streak, uh, like in the next uh, couple of years. It's just an amazing, amazing fact to to bring to to light to people who don't may not have known this about Ted Bundy. Right. Also, in continuing with this, at least uh, look like normalcy, he volunteers for the Seattle. Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, where he meets Anne Rule, which they become friends. Uh, she's 15, older, 15 years older than Bundy. Uh, and he de- receives his first degree in psychology from the University of Washington in 1972. And again, is working in politics for re-election in the campaign of uh, Governor 
Daniel Evans. Yeah. Um, now, tell us in 1973, things seem to have turned around for him, um, and he's doing the kinds of things that are very, very Im- impressive to him, and he's rubbing elbows with people. So he's getting the kind of attention that he always wanted. This is 1973. He's been accepted into law schools at the University of Utah and the University of Puget Sound and got letters of condemnation by people like Governor Governor Evans. Tell us what Ted Bundy's doing at that time and Stephanie Brooks. Oh, yes, 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 definitely, Dan. This This is fascinating how he must have had this all planned out. Obviously, he got through school, got a degree in psychology, and he's uh, entered. He's he actually got accepted. He hasn't accepted which one yet, but he's he's either he can go to University of Utah or University of Puget Sound to study law. And now he's involved in politics again, and he goes he goes on this this trip that takes him to uh, to California for uh, for what he's what he's doing in, in politics. And he figures I'm going to look up uh, my old girlfriend Stephanie Brooks. Uh, you would think he'd still be bitter, but here he is. He goes out and, and finds her, pursues her, and she's very impressed at uh, where he is in, in life now. This is you know several years later, um, and. She's so impressed that she she wants to continue and to start to see him again. But obviously he has something else on his mind. You would think that this would make him happy that he achieved something by working hard, uh, getting the degree, and, and getting the girl. Um, uh, but he has alternative motives in, in mind here where he shows her, look at, look at me, look what I've done, look what I can become, and he all of a sudden he just turns on her and just – he basically just dropped out of her life without even telling her why. They, they seem to be getting along very well, moving towards something, even perhaps marriage, when he just stops calling her, avoiding her phone calls, and altogether just not, not reaching out to her, and she's, she doesn't know what's happening. And there's a, a brief conversation that uh, they have that, that's been written about where she finally does get a hold of him on the phone, and she demands, she's upset, like, why are you not returning my calls? What's going on? Um, and, and Ted Bundy's reply was, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean, and then just hangs up on her. I mean, it's just so, you, you can't even imagine somebody doing something like that, how angry he could have been with her for the initial breakup that he would, um, you know, show up on her doorstep and engage in trying to gain her, her, her love back and then just throwing it back in her face as as a revengeful tactic like that. It's just it's hard to comprehend somebody going through all that, especially with somebody that he supposedly you know loved in, in a way that uh, he 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 hadn't before. So this is this is just a fascinating you know psychological profile uh, for for anybody that studies that kind of thing. I believe it's just it's just really incredible. At the same time, what was his relationship with Elizabeth, and how much did he tell Elizabeth about Stephanie Brooks, if any? Thanks. Yeah, no, they, that was something totally separate. Um, he, you know, nobody, nobody knew what this guy was doing. Uh, even the people closest to him, obviously, you know, the, the thoughts that were going through his mind were were, uh, were one thing, but to the other women he was seeing, uh, he did not uh, let them know about that. Um, so that was that was that was a secret. Like many, many things in, in Bundy's life was a secret he kept from, from everybody. He did. And he may even have other, other girls. There was speculation that he had other dates. He was going on dates when he was in different times in, in school, when he was in college. And 
it is hard to find a lot of these women who he dated to find out what what he was like. But uh, he he did date and he he did uh, he did go out on with, with these women and Elizabeth knew nothing about it. You write that about that time, young women in the Pacific Northwest began to disappear. By spring of 1974, what was Ted Bundy doing in terms of school and in terms of his career? What happened and what were the first reported women that disappeared? Yeah, well, actually, Dan, it was right after he, he threw uh, threw Stephanie uh, Stephanie Brooks overboard and then told her to, to get lost. This is really when uh, the victims began. The, the first victim uh, survived. Uh, it was Karen Sparks, and that was uh, in January 4th, 1974, she survived a brutal attack. I mean, it really, it was it was horrible. I mean, she survived, but it left her um, with permanent injuries, brain damage, and uh, other uh, internal organ injuries. Um, and it was the first known attack uh, by Bundy. Um, there's been speculation that he had other victims before that with the book addresses, and there are numerous um uh, places I found information that there are possibilities people he he may have killed, but this is the first actual known victim of his, and it began January, right after right after this breakup with uh, Stephanie Brooks, and it continued. It was uh, immediately right away. There was a, another one on January fourth, a few days later. Um, uh, uh, Karen Sparks was the first one. She was only yeah, she was she was uh, she was eighteen. All right, she was 18. So on February 1st, he he killed 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy. That was his first victim that he he killed. So right, right now that there's a spiral going on, and it, it happens it happened very quickly how he started to get on this this path of destruction. It seemed that breakup with uh, with Brooks set him off because he just went on on a spree. It seems like about one a month, um, right through the summer from January through June. Um, all in the Washington, Oregon area, Pacific Northwest, where he six women went missing right away, and um, and nobody knew he was doing this. Not his girlfriend, not not anybody. So this this was this was something that was a big big news item going on at the time. Six months, six victims, all in the same area. Very interesting. In your book, you have a person I've never read about specifically was the Marilyn Chino was best friends with Elizabeth. And uh, so you write about her impressions of Ted Bundy at that time. Uh, tell us a little bit about Marilyn Chino, because she's important to the story a little bit later, as, of course, Elizabeth's importance grows in the Bundy story as well. Yeah, I mean, Chino was somebody that uh, you probably don't get too much. Uh, if you read about her, uh, there are quite a few of you. Surprisingly, quite a few videos. She's done some interviews that more recently than than in the far past. So th- these are something that you'll find uh, currently, um, and that's how I found a very uh, open woman who spoke about uh, her friendship with Elizabeth, and she got to know Ted through their, that that friendship with her best friend, and she found Ted to be interesting, uh, non-threatening. He was somebody that she could talk to about politics, which was something that she liked to do. And it was just fascinating how this woman had no clue uh, about what what Ted uh, was like. I mean, obviously he was putting on a persona, f- you know, for Elizabeth and for for everybody. Uh, what his true nature was, he was something that he was hiding. So yeah, Chino uh, at first, you know, was charmed as well by by Ted, uh, but 
later on as the body count starts to uh, accumulate and there was a, when eventually a sketch was done by a police artist uh, showing somebody that looked pretty much like Ted almost exactly and describing a, a VW bug that he drove. I mean, this these are things that maybe Elizabeth didn't want to uh, process and admit to herself. And it was, it was Chino who who kind of like told her, you know, I, uh, this is this can't be a coincidence. I mean, uh, I, this could be you know the, your boyfriend here, and she was the one that initiated him that you should look into this a little more deeply and think about this. And she was the one that convinced him her eventually to Elizabeth to call the police and tell them that you know what I, I think the Ted that you're looking for is is my Ted that I've been dating, Ted Bundy. So it really it, she really had an influence in in Elizabeth in helping her see you know what other people uh, were saying that, that she could not. It's interesting, too, that you, you, you talk about the Elizabeth calling authorities after Chino urges her to do so, and and yet, and she tells the police, I don't know, she calls them three separate times. So yes. the first time, I don't know if it's the first or the second time, she actually tells them, hey, this is what the kind of things that he has in his car and list those things as you do in the book. Tell us which one of these conversations where she tells police some of the things that are in the car and tell us some of the contents that she lists. Yeah, I mean, she she gave them a lot of information. It wasn't just, you know, basically leaving your name and your number, and I believe, because a lot of people were calling in saying, you know what, I like anytime this, this kind of thing's happened, you will get a lot of people calling saying, I think I know who the killer is. And so obviously she was put on, on a list, but she gave a lot of information that you would think would stick out. Um, the strange behavior that, that uh, he was, you know, that he was, Performing even on, on her that he that that she realized was odd only only later on at, at first when it was happening she didn't think it was it was too odd. Um, uh, for instance, um, on a on a July Fourth rafting trip, uh, they were together just going down paddling on one of those uh, one of those rafts blow up rafts and uh, all of a sudden, and Ted just uh, throws her overboard basically. She's sitting on the edge and he pushes her into the water. And she's struggling to get back into the boat, and he is not assisting her at all. He's just sitting there, according to her, with this blank stare on his face, just looking off in the distance. And she's struggling to get back in the boat, and and she just thought it was odd, but she didn't think too much of it until all of these things accumulated, and she confessed to the police that you know what, this this guy has a has these tools in his car, and even in in my car, things like um uh like lug wrenches and, and, and things that he doesn't use for anything because he's not not very handy in that way, but there were crutches in there, there were knives, there was meat cleaver. Um, so all these things together just struck her as odd, and she reported all this stuff to the police who just took the information and and said, thanks, we'll, uh, we'll call you back if we need you. So it wasn't registering either that or the police were so overwhelmed with the, what they were getting. They had to sort through things one at a time. And they didn't get to it quickly enough, for sure, because a lot more women were about to be killed. So it was just something that she she reported. Yet she continued to date him, which was another. It's just another odd thing why you, if you suspected your boyfriend of being a killer, that you would continue a relationship, which which she did. You write enough. in this, yes, you write in this that once there was reports of six missing women. 
along with the brutal beating of uh, Karen Sparks, and it appeared in newspapers and TV throughout Washington and Oregon, you talk about a cloud of fear hovered over the population. Um, and then he found a similar, much of this information is that he struck out a few times so that later people came forward and said this was, a, you know, the, the similar adoption attempt was, was ascertained by police. Um, you talk about Bundy working at in Olympia at the Department of Energy Services, a state government agency, which you write, and I'd never read this before, among other things, was involved in the search for these missing women. And there is where Bundy yeah. met Carol Ann Boone. Tell us about all of this. Yeah, that that that's fascinating too. So you figure, you know, he's working at he was working at that hotline for you know suicide crisis hotline before that, and you you think some people believe that he liked to be around people under that kind of stress, people who were desperate. Um, what he enjoyed from that, I don't know, but he could not have been doing it to to help people. Uh, it didn't seem at that time that he was he was in that mode. So there had to be something he was doing uh, involved in suicide hotline for. But then when he met. Yeah, when he met Carol working for the Department of Energy Services, DES, yeah, it was a state a state uh, government agency. And, yeah, one of the things they were doing was involved in finding those those missing women. So maybe he wanted to have a little uh, his pulse on what uh, the police knew, what the investigators were doing, how close they were getting to, to solving the crime to him maybe. And he wanted to uh, – and strange enough, that's when, uh, you know, him, he and Carol Ann Boone met someone who would be – a major part of his life later on, and you know another woman who was you know captivated by him in a, an entirely an entirely different way, obviously because of the relationship they had, but that's where they met and um it, it's it's a fascinating account. I do kind of describe what i've what I've read about uh, about the beginning of their relationship, and she had a son at the time, teenage son James, she was divorced. Um, and there's not too much written. I wanted to find out more about actually uh, uh, James at the time, and there's not a lot written about uh, Carol Ann Boone's son James until actually later on. There's a little bit when when Ted's in prison on death row. This this son uh, comes to visit uh, Ted quite a bit near the very end, uh, but there's not too much written about 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 James. Yes, very interesting. Let's use this, Paul, just for a second to stop to talk about our sponsor, which is Shudder. AMC's network's Shudder is a premium streaming video service, super-serving fans of all degrees with the best selection of horror and thrillers. Shudder's irrepressible and thriving community revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. From bantering with Shudder on social media and contributing fantastic, irreverent reviews to relishing in member-only perks, such as exclusive releases and VIP movie screenings, Shudder believes there is safety in numbers. Don't be left in the dark alone. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 per month or $56.99 per year. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing human-created selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment, the Netflix for horror. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices. iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV. And Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. The first uh, movie I watched was Stan Lee's Lucky Man, 
based on an original idea from Stan Lee. Uh, this unique character, Detective Harry Clayton, a cop from London's Murder Squad. First episode, more yang than yin, blew me away. There's two seasons, and I've just started to binge. I signed up for my seven-day free trial. There's so many shows I'm interested. Seven days just won't do it. I've signed up. I also watched AMC Visionaries, Eli Roth's History of Horror, a Shudder exclusive. Right now, to try Shudder for free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use promo code TRUE. That's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R. To try Shudder for 30 days free, go to Shudder.com and use promo code TRUE. Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R. Now, Paul, we were talking about the very important women in Ted's life, but he just met and started interacting with Carol Ann Boone, and you mentioned later on in Death Row, the very interesting, uh, she's not visiting him anymore, but he ends up, the son, James, ends up visiting Bundy in prison. We'll get you to talk about that a little bit later. Now, with these, with the, of course, Bundy moves from state to state, and from Utah, he moves to Colorado, Yes. Um, let's talk about uh, Carol Ann Boone, and let's also talk about uh, Bundy once he is is being hunted. We'll say he's being known. There, the word is that Ted is a suspect. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah. Well, uh, when he becomes a suspect, it's. Um it's 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 not something that people are sure about. Even the police who find him uh, when he's first, even when he's first captured and caught in Utah. I mean, he's got these tools in his car, and he's got this uh, this car this car seat in the in the front that's now in the back, um, and all these these signs that are pointing to this guy is doing more than what than burglarizing places because uh, you know this there's just there's just not enough evidence here to to show that, but. They all had a hunch he was he was up to no good, and but there there was no evidence. There was obviously there, there was nobody to uh, collaborate what he did. He 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 killed all his his victims, and, um, and when he becomes a suspect, you know his his girlfriend continues. Elizabeth continues to to call the police. Like you said, it was it was it was three times, three separate times in three different jurisdictions. When you know in Washington, and then in in. Uh, in Idaho, the Colorado uh, authorities are looking for him, and, and she's letting them know. I believe, you know, my boyfriend might be responsible. His name is Ted. He looks like the sketches. He drives the uh, Volkswagen, and he's just still on this this list of of possible people who who could do this. But he's still not not quite up there yet. And it, it does. It takes, unfortunately, it takes too many more victims for them to. You know, to 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 get to him, to to sort through all the other information that they've they've been getting. Um, so it's really you know sad that it it took it took three different you know state authorities uh, investigating these crimes to to figure out that you know he was the one and to to stop him. So it's it's kind of it's it's sad that I, I'm in researching this, going through all the victims, and it's just it's overwhelming to to look at them and, and start that a book like this where you you find out all this information about all these women who just were young and had their whole life ahead of them. Uh, very, very sad. 
and it's just unfortunate the police didn't have the ability they have today to communicate and the different technologies that, that they have because this never would have happened today. Um, it, just all the different scenes, if you look at them, what would have happened with cameras and, and different people, witnesses, how they would have found him earlier. It's just it's, I, I, That's what struck me is that this is just should not have happened. Today it wouldn't, but 40 years ago it was it was just a different time. What's interesting, uh, you obviously include every single attack. You include possible victims. You include the victims that uh, basically have been uh, proven, basically from forensic evidence later on, and DNA, and uh, you know where the skulls were separated from the bodies. Uh, so these are confirmations that are well known, and you list to some potential victims. I've, what's found interesting is the. Of course, the assertion that Bundy killed when he was a paper boy at 14. Yes. Um, you've included this, and some people uh, discuss it differently. Uh, why do you think this is possible? And tell us about um, was interesting was Anne Marie Burr's father and information about seeing Bundy on a construction site. Tell us about that. I had never read about that particular detail before. Tell us about Anne-Marie Burr. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was, yeah, August uh, yeah, 31st, 1961, I believe, and yeah, Bundy would have been 14 years old. Hard to believe he had a paper route, but as a paper boy, I mean, you would think of somebody that, that was a serial killer that was, if, if you believe you're born with this desire, um, early on it, it should show itself in some way or some attempt, uh, some thought, some action, and this this would be in line with that, you know. Fourteen, and puberty is set in, and he has access. He's you know a paper boy. He this is something you can look into houses. You know who lives there, doors, windows, and this this you know this young girl um, went missing, and you know Ted Bundy is in the neighborhood. He's a paper boy, and um, even you know. Ann Rule and uh, uh, believes that uh, this was possible that he might have been he might have killed this eight year old girl. It was in Tacoma, Washington. Um, and uh, as far as details go, I mean she she disappeared. And but the father of this young girl believes that you know Ted Ted did this. Uh, and obviously many years later you look back and you say look look this this Ted Bundy was a young child in my neighborhood and my girl was missing and. Ted was was just seen at a uh, you know a local little area. There was like a little construction site where Ted was seen, and his father extrapolated that you know maybe he did this and, and was burying the body up there when I saw him in, in that construction site in that pile of uh, pile of dirt. Um, but there's no proof. Nothing was was ever found. And even Ted Bundy went to to the extreme of writing a letter um, in 1986 to the Burr family, uh, saying that you know that these are rumors that uh, about him he did not have anything to do with the girl's disappearance. Um so and this was on his on death row so he would have had nothing to gain or lose by admitting to another crime uh, if he committed it. Um so some people still believe he was lying as as he did so often and others believe that this it just didn't happen. So it's really almost something that each individual has to uh, and, and t talk about and make you know, make good in their own mind because there's no way to know either way what happened when both people uh, people deny it and other people speculate that it might have happened. So it's just fascinating to know that this possibly did happen, but there is no proof. To lend credence to the idea, though, that you, you write, and I've read this before, that, that, that 
the, the child was known to Ted Bundy and was actually known to hang around Ted Bundy and and was attra- not attracted to him, but they were playmates in sort of some way. And she had even been seen just holding on to his pant leg. So yeah, that, that, people speculate so that, that, that he could have. Yeah. That they were they weren't like strangers like that. That they they did know each other well enough to talk and say hi. And he being a little bit older on his bike, she being younger, she would you know chase him down the road and be friendly in that way. So he might have felt like you know what uh, that there's something maybe uh, I can get away with this because she did disappear in the middle of the night and she was in her room, uh, which was one of those strange disappearances like that. And to have somebody known to you to let them in the house that's always how it works it's, it's uh, people believe that investigators believe that it was somebody known to the to, to her uh, and had access to the house and, and knew the layout of the house which he certainly would have uh, but it, like I said it, it could have been him he did have the opportunity and you know what motive there would be besides uh, those 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 feelings of uh, uh, destroying other lives uh, that would that was going on in his mind besides that there's really no 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 way to know that he did that or not but like i said it is interesting and it is possible that he still may have done that even though he denied it and that there's no you know real physical evidence proving it we have to skip ahead just for purpose of brevity here but we sure after for chi omega for practical purposes after chi omega after those brutal murders and his final descent into madness and, and murder. Uh, so many people in, in at one time he was obsessed to kill and maim and try to destroy and snuff out their lives. Um, and then you talk about in the book, at, at some length, about all of the various things that he did say, what he did confess to, what he did allude to, um, the various confessions, even right up to the very end with Dr. Dobson, said some things that at least have to be considered important. Uh, and Stephen Mashad, the author that wrote the book uh, with Bundy, about Bundy, uh, had a lot of things that Bundy had said and has been published and known. Tell us a little bit about those confessions and what they told you in their entirety, what you can deduce from some of those, well, all of those Confessions and uh, yeah, admissions. yeah, Dan. And there were there was there were so many, um, especially at the end. I mean, I grew up um, when I was growing up. Ted Bundy was in jail, and a lot of the stuff was was coming out about what he said and what he did. They were looking for more bodies, and I remember just thinking that, and people reporting that he was just making these things up to prolong. Uh, try to get a stay of execution to help people find bodies instead of uh, you know avoiding being executed quickly. But there was so many things that he said, and I, it was it's frustrating in a way to research a lot of that because what he said, a lot of the things he said couldn't be proved. I mean, and 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 all the victims that he that he listed, um, the information about them, there's nobody else that could tell authorities what happened other than him. So it was, you had to rely on on his his words when. They knew that he was lying about a lot of a lot of the different things he confessed. Uh, he confessed to, to killing people, w- women that he didn't kill. We knew that they knew that he killed certain women that he didn't talk about. He didn't give any details at all about what he did with these women and where they were. So it was very frustrating trying to put these things together because there were so many victims and several dump sites 
and sometimes the the head would have been removed and so there's no detail of of how the head was removed where some believe he took them the heads home with him grisly as that sounds and then buried them at another site so and I do try to get my finger my hands on a lot of that information and I do list everything where all the bodies were found where all the victims were uh how they were handled by him and what and, but the, there's no real way to know what he did because he didn't confess to to everything it was just minute details and he left out the larger parts of of everything what he did with the women and where he disposed of their bodies afterwards it just wasn't enough information and i think that's that's what he kept from from authorities because i think he knew he thought that you know what i'm going to give him a little bit at a time and this will prolong my death sentence and um but it just wasn't going to happen because the uh, the governor of florida was not about to let him uh you know be in charge of his own death this way but they were going to set a time and when the courts said this, your time's up then your time's up so it was very frustrating for me to find out where all these women were where what what became of them if that makes sense mhm it's interesting that there's again lots of speculation that he brought the heads home but you don't get so much confirmation for some of the stuff it's it's i guess there's an inference certainly but you talk about actual confirmation of some of the things that he said regarding posing makeup dressing up tell us a little bit about what you write in your book about that yeah there were a couple of times he did uh admit that he would you know spend some time with some of the bodies he would go and visit them multiple times as they were you know, decomposing, uh, and, and sometimes spend the night uh, with them in the woods. Uh, obviously, sometimes he had even admitted to having, you know, sex, and necrophilia was a part of the ritual. But, you know, so were, you know, shampooing. He must have, you know, brought shampoo to, to shampoo their hair uh, and apply even apply makeup and nail polish to some of the victims. He mentioned uh, Melissa Smith as one of them and, and Laura Amy, um, who were victims um of his, and he described that, yeah, I, I went there and I would put, put clothes on them as well because some of the victims were found with clothes that did not belong to them. So right. he, he had, so he would be doing these things, uh, and he mentioned it, you know, offhand that he did that. Like it was no big deal. There's a certain times he would mention it, but it wasn't something he gave in, in, in great detail. He would just mention basically what I did without going into any detail. And obviously he might have been doing this all along to many of the victims, but he didn't admit to it uh, besides these few cases. So you got to assume that these, if he had a proclivity for this kind of activity, it was something he did to many of the victims and not just the couple that he mentioned. So it just it just leaves a bad tasting mouth because it's like you, you wonder if, if he was going into these, these dump sites after the bodies were, were first dropped there by him and, he was carrying on with them in this way. It's just something you you don't. I guess you don't want to think about. And maybe he didn't want people to think that about him either, because he didn't he didn't offer much detail at all about the activities with even the beheadings, how they were done, and which you know which ones were carried out where. It's just it's just grisly to think about. And but obviously you know authorities that's their job, but they just really couldn't get couldn't get it out of him all the information that was needed. Interesting, you write in about, and I've read this before, but in more detail in your book, the trial in Miami, Carol Ann Boone and Bundy become very close. And her and her son actually moved to Florida to be near Bundy, unbelievably. 
despite the information that she was hearing, reading, and must have known. I mean, tell us a little yeah. bit more about Carol Ann Boone and what happens with her intake. Yeah, well, she held out hope that, you know, this is this is not her her Ted, even though she must have known deep down it was, but she, she, she stayed by his side through, you know, through all this, um, right up and right up until, right up until the end. I mean, it is something that, uh, it's hard to believe with all the evidence and all the victims that, uh, you know, she would stick by him. And, and obviously they, they became so close that, uh, she wanted to be with him. She moved there, uh, her and her son, but uh, he also decided to uh, propose marriage to her during uh, during during court, and uh, it was it was legal because he asked her in front of a judge, and her accepting it, and uh, in that situation was made it uh, legal legal you know, legal marriage for them. Um, and what, what was fascinating was that they decided to even go ahead and try to have a, a child somehow. They, even though conjugal visits were not permitted at the uh, at the institution where he was staying in Florida, they um, they found a way. They had a guard who would turn his back uh, for a, a lot of the inmates for for a certain amount of money, and uh, would allow the inmate and the woman to conjugate. And uh, this is what Ted Bundy did. He had he had money and he paid a guard to turn turn aside one afternoon and uh maybe it was more than one afternoon but it was believed that it was at at some point she she was impregnated by Ted Bundy in the prison with uh with a guard who was not uh who had his back turned and she became pregnant and had a child you know 9 months 9 months later Rose Rose Boone um yeah, and that that's a fascinating uh chapter that I do detail what uh, what went on in the prison what was believed to have gone on and how these inmates, uh, you know, collected money for for this kind of activity it was it's pretty amazing. And it's not surprising, but it's uh, it's still still amazing. I think. Yeah, you write that uh, Boone died in 2012, but the daughter Rose's whereabouts have been kept secret, and no one knows where she is. Probably, luckily, on on her behalf. Yeah, I mean, you would think that there would be investigators, you know, trying to, you know, get that story out there. But whatever, however she did it, whether she changed her name, moved out of the country, who knows where. But uh, it's fascinating that no one's been able to find her. She hasn't come out to to want to speak or write a book or do any of those things. Um, And you can understand why. But uh, you always think that, you know, somehow some reporter can can find out and then get the truth. But it's just maybe they're respecting her right to privacy and it's, it's got to be an awful stain on a family to to have that that kind of legacy, um, and you know it's just it's just fortunate that uh, they they've been able to stay away from her, and fortunate that it wasn't uh, uh, you know if it was a male child, you would wonder if uh, he would be born with the same kind of affliction Ted had, and if there was a serial killing going on, would they start to presume that you know what Ted Bundy's child Ted Bundy's son is responsible? So it's just one of those things where. We're glad that she's hopefully having a, a good and normal life. Mm-hmm. You write, too, up to as many as 200 letters per day from women fa- fans writing to Bundy. Yes. Yes. And he corresponded with many of them right up to the very end, Two hundred, up to 200 letters a day. 
Yeah, I mean, he was uh, he was a celebrity to a lot of women, and even today you can see how there's still a fascination with him, and, and a lot of women too. <clears throat> are uh, I know many that that are interested in the story. They're not in the, the grisly details of what he did, but there is some you know fascination that still continues to linger, and a lot of myths about him that uh, you know sh- need to be debunked because how he is portrayed was probably not anywhere near what he was like in in real life as far as his uh, ability to you know, gain women's uh, you know, attention the way people think he did. I mean, obviously, Elizabeth was somebody who didn't seem to fit his profile. Maybe he he saw some weakness in her that, that he could um, that he could benefit from and exploit. Uh, but a lot of the times, just doing the research I did, a lot of the you know, people, the women that survived, attempted attacks from him, uh, described him in ways that were not flattering as far as being stammering he he couldn't speak well he had trouble uh even yeah actually he a lot of the times some of the women thought he was drunk some of them smelled alcohol on him so and that's another thing that's that's not talked about often just how much he drank uh there's really no way to gauge that he didn't talk too much about it but it was obviously something that he he drank a lot he was always at the bars and um, he was probably he was probably drunk when he made these uh, when he killed these women, so it's really fascinating to know. I wish there was more information about how much alcohol he drank, what and where, and how that influenced his behavior. If he needed it to get through what he was doing, or if being being drunk something that that made it uh, something that he could do more easily. It's just just not enough information out there. It's just unfortunate. It's fascinating to read about all these women's particular cases uh, where they were attacked, where where some survived, where like in the sorority houses where the, there were witnesses to this. At first, they didn't even know what had happened to their roommates. Um, but it's even more fascinating for the the stories that you have included here, where the victims narrowly missed the clutches of Ted Bundy. You know, either he was yeah. too drunk, or they th- they thought something, they felt something instinctively was off, and so they didn't put themselves in the same situation as the other victims were. It is fascinating to find out that everything about his M.O. was found out from these people, albeit um, sometimes when it was far too late. But a reconstruction of how he did things is now known and chronicled in your book, along with other people's books, on how exactly the ruse he employed and how he was able to do what he did. You, as we talked about in the introduction for your book, this is about the victims. Tell us about some of the research that you did and some of the people that weren't so well-known that you did get a chance to speak to. Well, a lot of my research was done. I didn't uh, uh, speak to anybody uh, verbally, but uh, there was some com- communications going on because a lot of these, these women and their friends, like I mentioned earlier, they do have different sites memorializing them and ways to contact uh, the person who, who put the information on the site. And it was just fascinating because they, they talked about things that the women did and wanted to do with their lives, what they were majoring in or what their personalities were like and what they, you know, when they – got out of school, what they wanted to do. And, again, a lot of them were so young, too, that they really didn't even have that. Some of them were, you know, 17 years old and, you know, in high school, some, a couple in junior high school, so it's hard to get a lot of information on 
on someone that young. They really haven't done too much, right? There was enough to at least list every woman who, you know, was a possible victim, even the possible victims I, I listed because there there is been there has been a number that people believe he's responsible for, for, for making these women disappear and not knowing what happened to them because they just they vanished and there's nothing nothing's been found. Uh, so they, they believe Bundy's responsible. So I went through and I listed each one of these as well. Um, and he even named some victims that police said he couldn't have done it. So he actually lied about some of the victims that he, he did have. Um, so, I mean, it's just something that uh, I wanted to make sure all the women were, I could get as much information about them as I could to, you know, show a reader that they're not just this, they're not just victims of this guy and that they were actually you know, women grow up to become, you know, mothers of their own, grandmothers someday, and it's just sad that uh, they never got a chance because of uh, because of Bundy. Mm-hmm. And certainly the outrage too of things like the public display of a marriage proposal to Carol Ann Boone in the case, him defending himself, and then of course being able to cross-examine victims in the courtroom to be able to stare them down and and to laugh and treat the thing especially in the beginning uh with with a lot of disrespect to everybody involved it was uh, uh truly very interesting for when you write about uh, Ted Bundy in the end desperate to have somebody listen to him uh desperate to be involved to help out in the potential bid to be able to avoid execution Whereas if he would have admitted, or pardon me, if he would agree to a plea bargain, he would not have been executed, which is a very interesting psychological statement, isn't it? Yeah, no, that that's that's fascinating. If if that and it, it all accounts that that is the case, that he could have actually gotten away with his life, but that he was too, at the time, at that stage, maybe of the uh, trial, he he thought he could get away with it, and he didn't want to settle for life in prison. Um, which is what he would have gotten, but uh, to be, you know, put to death. I don't know if he he actually thought they would go that far, and uh, but the the deal wasn't was in effect. He he could have pled out, um, and I just maybe he just believed that you know what these other cases were gonna they're gonna get to me eventually, and they're gonna get evidence to stick, and I'm gonna be put to death anyway. So maybe he just thought he would roll the dice and uh, try to get off on some technicality of some kind. Um, but but yeah, there was a deal in place to. Uh, to keep him keep him off death row, and he he decided to uh, represent himself in court and, and and try to win the case. As crazy as that sounds, with all the victims that were lined up against him, and the, only the few that that uh, he was being charged with at the time it was just you only need one one capital offense in Florida, and you're you're put on death row. So he was gambling, and he took a big gamble and lost. It's interesting, too, you talk about the role that his mother Louise had in his psychosexual <clears throat> development, I would say, or his, his, his development as a, as a child and then a, a man. Uh, what did she think about these charges? Did she believe it, and what was, was she there supporting him? What was, as you write, tell us about Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that that's uh, something that uh, I thought was kind of heart rendering because he was a mom, a typical mom, um, in every sense. She seemed to adore this 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 son of hers, uh, and even whether she thought he was guilty or not, she believed he was at least a, a good good boy who couldn't have done these things. In her mind, 
uh, he he wasn't this this uh, raging serial killer that uh, did these things to women, and but she stayed by him the whole time, even through you know, right up until the end. I mean, she was she was she was there for him and um, uh, telling him that uh, she was his good boy and that she loved him and. Um, so it's kind of sad uh, because she did speak a little bit about it to the press. She didn't do too many interviews, but she she did uh, she did some, and it just comes across as a, as a typical sad mother who who couldn't believe that her son could have done these things, um, which is a lot a lot of the cases you hear when serial killers are caught, and a lot of times sure. it's, it's it's the mom, and it's and it's usually sometimes the dad not there being abusive that that uh, is is kind of not the cause, but you see that more. You see a supportive mom who uh, maybe too supportive, overlooking things and not getting him some help maybe, but she she loved him and uh, that, that showed. And there's a whole chapter on, on her and, and the relationship that they had. We mentioned, again, very interesting. I'd never read this before about James Boone, Carol's son. He had come three times previously in the previous week, and he came the final evening of Ted Bundy's life. Um, what was, tell us a little bit more about the relationship. Yeah, I mean, it, it's odd. It seemed to have come out, out of nowhere because uh, during the, the course of his life, you don't hear him mentioned very much uh, at all. Um, yet during this time when he's about to uh, about to be killed in the electric chair, he's uh, he starts coming around, and, and it seems like Ted's gone very... Uh, he does a lot. Been doing a lot of praying at the end of the, the last couple of days, and uh, James was a very frequent visitor there. Uh, especially, I think it was uh, three times in that the last week. Um, uh, he and this, this gentleman named John Tanner, who was a, a lawyer in Florida, uh, and I guess he became like a spiritual advisor. So between uh, James and uh, this Mr. Tanner, John Tanner, they they. They kind of, you know, kept Bundy's mind at ease when he's about to be electrocuted and uh, within days. And for some reason, uh, you know, James Boone was somebody that uh, felt something uh, that he needed to be around uh, Ted at that time and felt some something for him and wanted to be there. It's fascinating that uh, we couldn't talk to him, but uh, the, dy- the dynamic that's involved in that. Uh, would be fascinating to find out more about. That's for sure. You read about the execution, uh, 42 witnesses, 12 reporters. I thought that was interesting, and the executioner was paid $150 in cash. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, outside there's protests, uh, 2,000 people celebrating. Um, tell us about Gary Ridgeway and the idea of a competition will say, and maybe the reason why Bundy volunteered to help in that investigation. Tell us about that. He, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, the, you know, the Green River Killer was uh, in stalking his uh, his territory, basically. And um, there have been uh, people who speculate that, you know what, uh, serial killers have this, uh, this personality trait where they need to be uh, in control. They need to be uh, looked at as somebody who's important. And here's this uh, this Green River Killer coming along. People don't don't know who he is. He's been active for a long time and hasn't been caught. So even that in itself uh, must have been plaguing Bundy because you know as as many victims as Bundy had, it was all relatively done within a few a couple of year period of time, with a gap in between when he was in in, in custody. But 
the Green River Killer is, is unknown. It's like a masked menace, and he's uh, and actually his his numbers of victims uh, went above and beyond what Ted Bundy did. So you, some people speculate that he was maybe wanted to stop this guy for that reason because you know what's making him uh, not look so good in the sense this is all he had now. He's going to be put to death, and he wanted to be notorious perhaps and. He also wanted to get maybe get some time, uh, extra time before he was electrocuted by cooperating with the authorities in that area to try to find out who this Green River Killer is, aka you know uh, the the whole thing with uh, the movie that that came out later on. Everybody knows uh, you know Silence of the Lambs where somebody was uh, the killer was used to try to find out what this other new killer was was going to be doing, and he wanted to get that that acclaim and, and get uh, notoriety for helping and also for maybe for stopping this killer who was going to break his uh, his record in the, of murder. So it's fascinating how that might have played out. It's it's speculative and, you know, psychology major stuff can talk about it, but it is fascinating how he wanted to, to reach out to try to help. He reached out to authorities. They didn't reach out to him to try to, to find out who this killer was, and uh, eventually he was caught. Gary we all we all know the story. We all know the story of um, of uh, uh, pardon me of Silence of the Lambs. But the, you write about us about the Red Dragon and Thomas Harris attending Ted Bundy's uh, trial. Tell us about the book Red Dragon and as you write in the book. Yeah, well, uh, Red Dragon. Um, yeah, that was a, a precursor for. Um, for uh, Silence of the Lambs, I'm pretty sure. And what I read there, yeah, Thomas Harris was the author. Yeah, and he had uh, he attended uh, a Bundy trial, uh, just something something he must have been interested in, obviously in, in crime, true crime. And he mailed a, a copy of his book, The Red Dragon. It was a 1981 novel. Um, and obviously that's the book that introduced to the character, you know, Hannibal Lecter. So he just, uh, <laughs> Tom Harris just happened to be this, this, great uh, author of these books and uh, he was fascinated he was at a Bundy trial and uh, he mailed a uh, mailed a copy to of Red Dragon to Ted so uh, it's just one of those little tidbits of information that you you pick up somewhere and like wow I didn't know that either and how come I well maybe I did I just I, I thought I would remember that but it's something that that's fascinating one of those small little details that make make you know something like like a book like this interesting because maybe you haven't heard it before and it's just a tidbit, but it's it's, it's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, you you talk about uh, the websites that you were able to access recently that weren't maybe up a few years ago or many years ago. Tell us about some of that. Those websites um, cite a couple of those for us, and uh, where you got some of the valuable information, and where some of these people are located online. Well, a lot of the information is uh, I do list my sources, and uh, like I said, a lot of the, uh, you, even YouTube videos you can find interviews on, on them. If you know you want to find out uh, about Chino and how her and Elizabeth uh, they were best friends, and you can find some of these interviews uh, that that were done that maybe you didn't when they happened you didn't pay too much attention, but now with social media exploding, you can actually find these these videos and interviews all in one area, and they're they're, they're numerous. And they're obviously authentic, so you don't have to worry about you know things that you read sometimes are not accurate. But with interviews, you get to pull information, you get to pull 
you know, you know what they what people are directly saying, and you can even read the you know the looks on their faces as they're saying this, so you can interpret them in, in ways that you you can't when you just read the, read about them. Um, so specific sources, I mean, I don't want to list any, but I do list my the sources that I used in the research of this book, um, and recommending any one over the other. It's um, there's just just so many, um, and obviously it, t- it took a lot of you know research, but the websites are all out there, and that's why I collected them and put them all at the end of the book in the bibliography page where I, all the sources are cited. Um, so I don't know what more I can say about that right now. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds good. I want to uh, thank you very much, uh, Paul Leonardo, for coming on and talking about your book, Ted Bundy, The Angel of Decay. Uh, Thank you, Dan. For those that might want to look uh, at other work, uh, this work and other work, do you have a website or a Facebook page that they might be able to take a look at, please? Yeah, I do have a, a website, paulleonardo.com. Uh, also, Amazon page, I have, a, I have an author page that I put a lot of information and interviews that I've done on uh, on that uh, that as well, so that, that's available for people. Um, yeah, either one would tell you a lot about the books and the things that I'm doing and have done. Absolutely, and you have an, an, another book, Murder Without Motive, being released this year as well. No, that was actually a uh, release so back in 2006, and that's a uh, Murder Without Motive was part of a, a thrill killer book. I made a, it wasn't an electronic book at the time, um, so uh, the publisher it's, it's gone uh, out of print now. So I wanted to have an electronic book available. So Thrill Killers was the title of the original book. And I just uh, used the title uh, "Murder Without Motive" was the subtitle of that book, so I'm just using that. And it's the an e-book that's available now for the first time with that "Thrill Killers: Murder Without Motive." Uh, it's available as an e-book. Absolutely, that sounds fantastic. We'll have to uh, have you back on and uh, talk about that fascinating book, "Thrill Killers." Certainly, anytime, Ted. Anytime, Dan. Thank you very much, Paul Leonardo, for Ted Bundy, The Angel of Decay. It has been fascinating. You have a great evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Good night. Bye now. Take care.